If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! (laughs) Oh, man. Like that's going to fool anyone. Are you kidding me? Oh, man. Uh, and ben sent me a interview, uh, sorry, not an interview, an intro uh, that was done, um, I don't know, probably towards the early part of the pandemic. And um, uh, we didn't get one today, long story short. So uh, we're looking for a generic, which is usually, you know, the producers just put one together. Uh, so Ben decided he'd get one from the late 50s. <laughs> But anyway, uh, pretty funny. And as I've had many of you comment uh, in noticing uh, Kurt uh, going through adolescence since he's be, uh, become the intro voice. All right, enough of that. He's already on the other side of the glass just uh, screaming and yelling and pulling his hair out. Uh, good afternoon. It is 309. It's 900 CHML. It's Hamilton today. Uh, the gang is here. Uh, Dave and Diana in the newsroom. Will Erskine booking the guest. Big Ben Strawn is, uh, is behind the board. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. You can talk to us. You can text at us. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. 905-645-3221. You can always send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. We would live to hear from you. All right. Uh, this just breaking, and you might remember um, the name uh, Major General Danny Fortan. Uh, a judge has acquitted uh, the, Major, uh, the Major General Danny Fortan of sexual assault over the allegations that uh, dated back to 1988. Uh, they stem from his time at the Military College in Quebec. Uh, which the complainant also attended. Uh, the complainant in the case told the court she is certain without a doubt that the perpetrator was 410, and her lawyer uh, said she brought the incident to light in 2021 after she retired due to the fear of career percussions. Uh, Fortan's lawyer cited inconsistencies between the complainant's testimony and her previous statements to investigators last year, including details of the incident. Uh, so there you go. Um, it looks at this uh, at this point, first blush, well, it is. That's the ruling. Uh, military officer uh, Denny Fortan acquitted on 1988 sexual assault charges. So there you go. All right. Uh, moving forward, another jam-packed show. Hope you hang around for it. Got the Christmas tree over the weekend. And yeah, um, they're more expensive. I'd say 20% more expensive. And the other thing we're noticing, too, we usually get one that's like seven to eight feet. And so it's, uh, I'd say about seven, maybe seven one. Uh, but where you really notice it is they're just younger trees because we, when they do the cut, this is a real tree, of course. When they do the cut, we always keep the little end, and we um, write on it with uh, with marker, and then we sort of make a Christmas ornament out of that. I know it's pretty hokey, isn't it? So we've got all of these tree stumps little, you know, half-inch pieces of tree uh, or whatever uh, with dates on them. And you can literally see in the last couple of years. Now, we've had to change where we've gone because COVID, the place we were initially going, wasn't doing it anymore. And I never went back to check them out, but I should have. Uh, instead, went to, uh, you know, one of your typical, um, you know, big box versions of a Christmas tree store, if I can say that. Anyway, uh, so we've noticed that it's what they're doing is they're keeping the trees a bit uh, higher, a bit taller, but they're not as bushy because they're younger whereas you know normally you would get a 10 plus year tree i think we're a little bit on the younger side uh this year so although it's like seven feet 
it's a stretch, and uh, it just certainly isn't as full as uh, as a typical tree of what you thought would be that age. So, and amazing, the jump from that to the I think eight to nine foot tree was like fifty bucks. So, uh, taint cheap, taint cheap. All right. Uh, good news is on the education front that, um, you know what? We're going to save these anyway. I'm going to, let's save these, Ben. We'll, we'll run them next hour. Uh, the good news is, is that, um, the union, the CUPE union for the education workers has ratified their strike, uh, uh, had their strike vote and ratified the deal. So good news there, uh, is that the education workers, uh, 73% of them voted in favor of it and 76% of them voted, which is, uh, quite high for one of these votes apparently uh high turnout uh, clearly they were uh, interested in the deal now the union wasn't initially going to give them or bring this deal forward and instead was going to have another five-day strike mandate but the union spoke or sorry the members spoke up and said we'd like to see this deal please and obviously uh the vast majority of them uh, quite excited with it and uh ratified it with a 73 percent vote 76 percent of members uh voting uh in that uh ratification so good news there uh, they're moving on to the education workers, um, or sorry, the uh, teachers and such, after the education workers. So uh, hopefully we'll get things done and uh, we'll keep the kids in school and, and things moving forward after this uh, global pandemic. All right, the other <laughs> news, not so good. Uh, food prices uh, predicted, predicted, looking into the crystal ball, uh, looking into that, um, you know, giant soup pot, what you're seeing, uh, five to 5.7%, they're predicting the prices will increase in food for 2023. So so no uh, immediate, uh, uh, no immediate uh, help on the horizon. Looks like we're going to be in this for a while. Uh, what else we got? Uh, oh yeah, uh, Justin Trudeau and Doug Ford together in Ingersoll at an EV plant. So uh, good news there. We knew about this uh, in the past, but now things are moving forward. Uh, we'll get you up to date with what that story is and what it entails and what the auto industry is going to look like in Ontario as we move forward. If you were here on Friday, you remember we were down at Gore Park for the lighting of the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope as we kick off, uh, as we kicked off the Blitz uh, weekend at Lime Ridge Mall and, of course, uh, Gore Park. And uh, now the uh, campaign is in full swing. All, all the details on how you can help us help the kids at 900CHML.com. But joining us now, Olivia Mackay, president of the CHML Children's Fund, and give us a little bit of an update on what happened over the weekend and is here now. Olivia, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. How are you, Scott? So far, so good. So not a bad weekend to get things started. No, pretty good. We uh, had a great success at Friday at Gore Park. The tree was beautiful. Big thank you to the city of Hamilton and the downtown BIA. And then we were off to CF Limerich on Saturday, Sunday, where we got a lot of donations in. Uh, we had great help from the uh, Firefighters Loco 2 88, who also uh, not only helped us raise money on site, but donated $5,000 to the Children's Fund. Wow, that's amazing. Just even having them there, they could probably raise that, just running around with a boot and, and shaking people down. But to have them all actually donate, too, that is incredible. So that being said, how is this for a kickoff to get things rolling? Do you feel the momentum this year? I do. This is, you know, we'll start seeing the donations come in more and more. I always feel after Blitz Day, Blitz Weekend, it kind of opens the doors. It, it starts to feel more like Christmas. Uh, I always feel like once kind of that snow starts to fall, we start getting those toys around the tree. Charities are going to come in. I have a toy pickup on Friday, um, a bunch next week. So we'll have those charities come in and out of the doors. Fill the lobby, empty the lobby. You know that kids are having, uh, getting toys at their Christmas parties, getting toys under the tree this Christmas. 
All right, let's uh, go through, first of all, and I know this is being a bit repetitive, but we want to get this out there, and that is how you can donate. Before we even get to the events and the stuff that's still to come, like uh, uh, Pioneer's Three Cent a Leader Day and such, uh, talk about the many ways you can donate, and, and it all starts online at 900chml.com. Yeah, you can visit 900chml.com, check, uh, click on the Christmas Trip Hope banner, and you'll see the webpage, and it will tell you all the ways to donate. So you can donate through uh, PayPal Giving Fund and or canadahelps.org. You can also text the word donate to 30333 to make either a $10 or $20 donation. And that goes all on your cell phone bill. You can mail us a check. You can drop off uh, a donation in person, cash and or toys. We're open uh, Tuesday to Thursday uh, from 9 to 5 at 875 Main Street West. And talk about the events that are still to come, including uh, Three Cent Pioneer, uh, Three Cent a Day at Pioneer uh, uh, Energy and such. This is also a big day, a big a big time for people to donate. Yeah, so um, you can visit any Pioneer location. All the locations are listed at 900chml.com. On Wednesday, December 14th, where Three Cents a Liter will be donated to the Children's Fund. So Pioneer uh, Parkland last year donated over $20,000. And in the past 30 years, has donated over half a million dollars to the Children's Fund. Uh, that is incredible. So uh, what amazes me is uh, the stories that you hear when you're doing the broadcast like we did this past weekend, this past Friday, um, and, and meeting all of the various children's charities that uh, that obviously uh, benefit when you make a donation to the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope campaign. But every so often you hear stories. We've been doing this for a long time. You hear stories that really resonate and 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 just sort of drive home what we are all doing here and, and why we're we're doing it but um one of the guests i had on i believe it was comfort bear and mm. what what they basically do is, is very very simple you make a donation and they make sure that one of these bears goes to uh one of the children who are in need throughout the holiday season so uh she was telling us the, the lady the representative that uh, they went to go and, and do a drop-off and there had been some um uh it was an abusive family an abusive situation and um y- you know we've heard from lots of people who who uh, who have received funds from the charity or from our charity and and how they go into homes and what they do and it really is a heart moving experience. But they were telling this one story about this girl and they said they went into the house and she said there was obvious signs of trauma and she says there even like bruises on the kid and whatever and the parents are there uh, and everybody's there so you can imagine what that kind of scenario is like and then they give the child the bear. And, of course, she gives the bear a big hug, and she says, I promise I will never hurt you. Oh. And you think, holy smokers, they're right there. That's the message. That's, uh, you know, the, the kind of work that these agencies and charities do. So it's when you hear stories like that, and, and, and that's the nice thing about doing uh, this Blitz weekend and such and, and the, the show at, at uh, Gore Park, where we get to introduce people to the real stories, to the agencies that actually work with the kids. And it really is moving when you hear some of these stories. Yeah, and then, you know, hearing that is like your heart breaks and you know how much we're doing for the community and my my favorite story from Blitz Weekend was um, parents they brought their she must have been three or four and I remember she wanted to give whatever she had in her piggy bank and she came over to the broadcast to the booth 
and came over to the firefighter and just dumped her whole piggy bank out into the boot. And my heart just dropped because I was just like, you're, wow. you're like four years old and you're giving mm. everything that, you know, you probably saved to help yeah. other children. Like the fact that she knew and it, it was so touching and, you know, that we could touch these people knowing that they could touch so many more in the community that need the help. Still lots of work to be done, and you've got all month to do it. 900CHML.com, 900CHML.com, how you can help us help the kids. All the details with the CHML Children's Fund and the Tree of Hope campaign. Olivia, another great weekend. Thanks so much. Keep up uh, the great work. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You've certainly heard and we've heard lots of uh, about parents who are scrambling to try to find medication for their kids who are obviously sick during this uh, season of viruses and the flu and what have you. Uh, and, and of course, there's been shortages here, which have had a lot of uh, parents concerned and scrambling, trying to find uh, some of this stuff, including getting friends or relatives to send it to them. Uh, from the United States. Uh, we're hearing that things are back to normal, are slowly getting there. What is going on with the shortage here in Ontario? Let's bring in uh, Jen Belker, uh, Vice President, Strategic Initiatives and Member Relations with the Ontario Pharmacists Association and is with us now. Jen, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you for having me, Scott. So how are the shelves, Jen? Are we stocked back up? How? What, what is it like out there as far as getting medication? Well, I wouldn't say we're stocked backed up. We're uh, definitely still experiencing some level of shortage without having um, that full opportunity to be flushed with product and get product into the hands of every parent out there who's been looking for it. Um, ultimately, we did see the import of um, a million bottles of product that came through um, just uh, just over a week ago and were on pharmacy shelves, But uh, and that has made a difference, but ultimately, we're not back to seeing regular stock levels in pharmacies just yet. Where is it coming from? Where is it arriving from? The import that just entered the distribution chain in the past week and a bit was from the United States. Um, on the retail side, uh, we have seen imports from the United States and Australia for our hospital distribution networks, um, but they are those similar products manufactured in those countries that have been um, authorized for importation by Health Canada. And will uh, any idea when it will get back to normal, or is this are we in for this for the rest of this season? It's hard to say. So we do have our domestic manufacturing running at 200% of their normal um, high capacity. So definitely the ramp up of our domestic capacity will help contribute to that long-term solution. Um, But we know that the demand has been in excess of that. So this temporary importation may continue to be necessary to fill those gaps in the interim. I think ultimately it will likely just depend on what demand does um, because this shortage has been so demand driven that if we continue to see really, really high levels of need for the product, uh, we may continue to have a strained supply um, in the coming weeks and months. But we're definitely slightly better off now than we were prior to that importation of product. So what is it in particular that we are short of? Is it or is it across the board? So um, we're short of um, a variety of different products, but what most notably we're talking about here is the children's pain relievers. So acetaminophen, Tylenol uh, is a brand name, or ibuprofen, Advil. Um, Other over-the-counter products have been in short supply too, as I'm sure many of your listeners have seen um, pharmacy shelves looking very different than in prior years. Um, This has been the most visible example of drug shortages with our over-the-counter shelves looking bare, um, but we've been dealing with this 
behind the counter with prescription drug shortages um, quite substantially um, over the past you know five to ten years, um, but definitely more so throughout the pandemic. How does this happen, Jen? How do we end up with shortages like this? So our supply chain um, is, you know, very complex in the sense that, you know, we rely on a lot of different uh, factors to determine sort of what the most ideal amount of drug to enter the Canadian marketplace is. This specific shortage around the children's pain medications um, has been um, primarily demand-driven, with demand being three to four times higher than previous all-time highs and out of season. And so it's really thrown the ability to predict what supply would be needed and ramp up in appropriate time for a loop. And we've seen that continued shortage because the demand just has not let up and our manufacturing capacity just is not, um, at this point in time, robust enough to keep up with this level of demand at this point in time. Um, we certainly know that a certain amount of this is cyclical and we can see from other parts of the world what we may be anticipating. Could we see this coming? This one was much harder to predict because the demand hit much earlier in the season than we've ever seen before and at much, much higher levels. And so with that information, it's really hard to determine whether or not um, this is uh, something that will be sustained and ongoing into future years. But I, I don't believe that based off of the information we would have had at hand that we could have predicted the extent of this shortage um, early on in the year. I think it was back in March, April, May, that we were first talking about shortage of these products. Um, so really challenging from from that respect, um, because in other situations, we've actually had to destroy product because we produced more than what we ended up requiring. And so it's a tough balancing act when uh, we have really exceptional circumstances where we see trends that have never before been uh, observed within the, the purchasing um, marketplace on some of these over-the-counter products. How are other countries uh, handling this? How are they preparing? So we do know that, you know, the domestic uh, supply and manufacturing capabilities in each country looks a little bit uh, different. We have seen anecdotally that, you know, in some of those cross-border towns, there's been uh, the need to place some limitation on supply there and you know, mm. some concern about frailty in, in other countries as well. Um, you know, ultimately, it becomes a real challenge if globally we have high demand for these products all at the same time because we rely on many of the same countries to produce our raw ingredients, countries like China, India, that produce the, the active ingredient for these medications. And if globally all countries are trying to up, um, upregulate their production and, and make more of these, um, that that global supply of even raw ingredients may become problematic. At this point, I don't believe that that's been contributing to it. It's just been our ability to ramp up how much we make in response to how much we need that's been the challenge. But um, that, that could contribute to this in the future if, uh, if this continues to be an ongoing, um, extraordinarily high utilization type product. And how much would this contribute to what we're seeing in hospitals right now, where they're getting uh, overblown, especially with kids? Absolutely. So, you know, as a, as a parent myself, I know it's really tough to try and determine, you know, when you need to seek medical care, knowing that the system is stressed. And sometimes the last place you want to be with a sick child is, you know, in an emergency room, waiting room. Um, realistically, these medications are intended to um, control symptoms, which include things like fever, um, but if your child is ill enough to cause you to feel like you need to seek medical attention, you should absolutely do that regardless of whether or not you have access to these products. Um, if, you know, in your parents' judgment, you're not in a position where you can continue to manage your child's illness. Uh, definitely a, a real concern, though, in the sense that you might not 
feel as prepared to manage your child, child at home without access to these medications. Mm-hmm. And that's where we may see, you know, more parents contacting their doctor's offices, looking to go to walk-in clinics or perhaps going to urgent or um, emergency care rooms in order to try and seek guidance when they don't have access to the tools in their toolkit that they would normally need to treat those symptoms. How concerned are you when the medication does arrive or, you know, when a shipment does come in that there's hoarding? There's definitely been precautions we've recommended putting in place at community pharmacies to control the number of um, bottles that a family can purchase um, based on the professional judgment of the pharmacy team. Um, Ultimately, the amounts that you need if you have five children versus if you have one will look very different. Um, So, you know, absolute limitations aren't always helpful. But uh, definitely we have seen, like with other products throughout the pandemic, that those who have the means and the ability to um, purchase more than what they need sometimes do in, in preparation for tougher times. So we would encourage people to just only buy what they need at this point in time. The equity of access to supply is really, really important. All parents who have a sick child and who need these products should have the ability to access what is available and uh, to do so in a, in a fair way to try and ensure that we're not getting hoarding or these secondary marketplaces that um, put predatory type prices um, in order to, to, to profit. So um, we're, we're discouraging from that and trying to do what we can on the pharmacy side to perhaps keep things behind the counter, put in purchasing limitations and so forth. Um, but we recognize that uh, this, this could occur and could contribute uh, in an ongoing way to the shortage. Jen Belker with us, Vice President, Strategic Initiatives and Member Relations, Ontario Pharmacist Association, talking about medication shortages. Jen, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. G7 has imposed a price cap on Russian oil. What does that mean exactly? And British Columbia and the uh, liquid natural gas business. Let's bring in uh, Dan McTagg to talk about those issues. Uh, issues. President of Canadians for a formal, uh, Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, and with us now. Dan, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. I am. Thanks for having me, Scott. All right. First of all, the Russian uh, cap on Russian oil from the G7. What does this mean? How does this work? Well, it's uh, G7 and other members' attempt at trying to punish uh, and prevent Russia from being able to use its uh, natural gas, and in particular oil, uh, to be able to finance its war against Ukraine. That's, of course, the theory. Uh, And, of course, in practice, it means that uh, they will be inviting other countries to prevent Russia from selling to various G7 and other allies' Uh, nations that uh, would also involve removing the insurance certificates, uh, guaranteeing, of course, uh, the financial um, obligations that a country has when it sends oil to another country in terms of transitioning, transactions, et cetera, and finances. So on paper, it sounds great. Uh, In practice, uh, probably not so much. And as we saw earlier today, no effect on the market whatsoever. In fact, uh, up until uh, markets, uh, again, got into more, uh, you know, nervousness over uh, the U.S. Fed and deciding to, you know, double down and harder, harsher uh, interest rates uh, for the foreseeable future. Up until then, oil was up two bucks a barrel, and now, of course, it's fallen well over three dollars a barrel. So, uh, a long story short, this doesn't necessarily work. Well, it won't work because Russia is selling oil for under sixty bucks a barrel. That's the cap. Mm, <laughs> so, yeah. if you're already right. selling for fifty-two, your euros and much of it by pipeline. Yes, of course, some of it by ship. Uh, and there's ways of getting around that. I mean, China, uh, you know, India, 
two examples, uh, are not interested in uh, complying or becoming part of this G7 cap. So they're still going to buy, and they're going to buy a lot more. So the question is, what will this do? Uh, it will have the unfortunate effect of probably reducing availability of supply to uh, European and North American nations, which means, uh, in, in essence, uh, it will have the opposite effect of what is intended, and that's much higher prices for all of us sooner or later. Uh- all right, saw so an interesting story over the course of the weekend. Uh, the BC Premier, new BC Premier, walking a tightrope uh, with a um, a natural gas industry that's that's growing and trying to balance that with uh, obviously uh, their climate goals and such. Uh, and and heard a stat that that uh, BC is on board to beat. Alberta when it comes to production in natural gas eventually. We don't really hear much about BC. We hear about more Alberta. What's going on in BC? Northwest BC has a place called the Montney uh, uh, play. It's really called a shale, if you will. Uh, it is extraordinarily rich in natural gas, not, not so much oil. And uh, BC has an opportunity to get that product to market, not just, of course, for our own domestic consumption, which I think is uh, pretty stable, but uh, to global consumption. Uh, and of course, BC would be able to, uh, were it permitting itself, uh, pipelines would be able to get these to various ports, uh, turn them in, liquefy them, and then turn them into liquid natural gas, which then could be sent anywhere in the world. By the way, it's not new. Um, we've been pushing this now for 15, 16 years, we as a country. Uh, 16, 17 projects have been proposed. 16 of 17 have been cancelled through a variety of uh, obstacles, most of them miscreancy by green organizations and other groups uh, uh, that insist that, uh, you know, Canada's a bad country, natural gas is dirty, and, of course, uh, you know, uh, who wants Canadian energy? Uh, I'm being, of course, tongue-in-cheek, but the reality, Scott, is that uh, we have missed a a significant opportunity, and uh, not to make too fine a point of it, Germany signed a massive multi-decade deal with Qatar rather than with Canada on natural gas. By the way, our provable reserves of natural gas are greater than Qatar's. So how does beautiful British Columbia balance this? And again, usually when these flat red flags go up, it's uh, it's dirty Alberta that gets called in. How come we don't talk about BC much? Well, we don't because they've been very careful in not getting that information uh, to the press. The press has been very much... Uh, uh, zero focused on Alberta being, of course, the largest uh, uh, the largest producer of energy, oil, and gas uh, in the country. But of course, yes, Saskatchewan has a lot of oil. Uh, we know that Newfoundland has some natural gas off Nova Scotia. The country is replete with oil and gas, uh, but only certain regions uh, get the, the the political play, the media play. But yes, BC is extraordinarily well. Uh, you know, endowed with uh, a significant, abundant amount of uh, natural gas uh, in its reserves, uh, in its in the ground. It's only a matter of getting it out. And of course, that involves international foreign organizations obstructing Canada, using our, uh, you know, our very weak, uh, very open legal system to uh, to do in Canada what you probably can't do in many other nations. All this while coal goes out of BC. How much of that do they export every year? Yeah, Vancouver is the largest uh, coal export in North America. Uh, Say that again, Dan, because I'm not sure many people understand that. Yeah, I think people uh, don't like to hear that, especially those in B.C. And uh, in my many conversations with your colleagues there in Scandal and others, I do remind, and it's easy to remind, that the largest coal port in North America is in Vancouver. Trendy, Tony, Vancouver. You know, the place that doesn't want to have natural gas, wants everybody to use stoves and heat pumps. 
look, uh, it's uh, it's hypocritical to say the least that uh, we're big shippers of that product, and uh, it's even more hypocritical. You have countries like Germany crowding out Africa, crowding out other nations that are trying to get uh, to some standard or semblance of living. Uh, while we continue to drive up the price of coal, mm. because of our short-sightedness in putting all our eggs in one basket relying on Russia for that dirty oil and gas. How's that working out for everybody these days? I asked Elizabeth May that when I had her on a week or so ago. I said, how come we're doing all of this instead of just like focusing on getting the, uh, the world off of coal? And she said, well, that would have worked 20 years ago, but it won't work now. And I mean, I, you know, I'm old enough to remember, well, if we had built the pipelines 20 years ago, we wouldn't be talking about it now. I mean, well. we'll be saying that 20 years from now reason she has one or two seats in the house of commons and even those people i guess have to uh, aren't aware of the hypocrisy but uh, elizabeth may aside i mean she's not very good in economics uh and uh, obviously not very good on geopolitics should keep her nose out of things like trying to invite uh you know uh geopolitical problems with between palestine and israel mm. she's so clearly done last week but i'll leave that to the uh, to the greens who seem to have a problem with their foreign policy and deal now with a specific energy policy. Their policies, what they've advocated, along with the Liberals and the NDP, is one of the main reasons why Canada, the third largest provable reserves in the world, it can't help the world, and uh, we're in a lot more dangerous yeah. place. Love that inflation. Love those high interest rates. You voted for them if you voted for those three parties. Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Good. Thanks for having me here, Scott. Cheers. We're creating a whole supply chain here in Canada so that auto workers here in Ontario will be able to build electric vehicles with batteries made in Quebec from nickel, mined in northern Ontario, and lithium from Alberta, with made in Canada steel and aluminum that is some of the cleanest in the world. Uh, that is the Prime Minister earlier today in Ingersoll, along with the Premier, talking about a new plant there, the General Motors Cami Production Plant, which has been retooled and is uh, the company's bright drop all-electric vehicles coming out of there. Basically, these are delivery vans. To talk more about all of this, David Booth is with us, senior writer, Post Media Driving, driving.ca, and is with us now. David, thank you for your time. Hope you're well. Uh, very well, Scott. Uh, I was just at the... Um, 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 bright drop uh, event in Ingersoll. I had to rush home for your interview, but it was quite interesting. So tell us about it. What are your thoughts of all of this? It must be quite exciting. It is. You know, I mean, perhaps this EV revolution will have some positive benefits here in Ontario and Canada in terms of jobs. Uh, you know, there's fewer jobs per vehicle built because an EV has fewer parts. Mm-hmm. But there's going to be a thousand people employed at the uh, Cami plant which is very, very good news. And uh, they think by 2025, they're going to be producing about 50,000 of those uh, Zebo 600 um, delivery vans. They're basically like the, the, the UPS vans. Right. You know, drop stuff off at your door. Um, basically that electrified. How significant is this, the fact that this is not just, um, uh, you know, uh, commercial vehicles, public, or sorry, pu- uh, private vehicles for public use, but that these are actually de- uh, delivery vans, like things that you would see, as you said, uh, with uh, with Amazon or any of the delivery companies or, or, or so on. Uh, this is going to be a good test drive for all of these. Well, uh, first off, it's, uh, it's, it's pertinent on two points. Um, the first is it's Canada's first ever uh, full-scale uh, yeah. EV assembly plant. 
that's really exciting. And and GM pulled it together, I think, in about eight or nine months, you know, the conversion. It's really quite amazing. They they really put the, 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 the pedal to the metal, as it were. Uh, the other thing is, is that last, what they call, technically the term is last mile delivery vehicle. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So something flies or takes a train, then it takes a big uh, truck, and then it gets delivered to a local warehouse or something like that, and then it has to be delivered from the warehouse to the actual end user. That's what these trucks are for. And the good thing about that is that they have known routes. It's not like your car, where you know four days of the week or five days of the week or. 29 days of the month, for that matter. You drive 40 kilometers, and everybody knows that. And then mm-hmm. one day of the month, you drive 1,500 kilometers. Okay? Electric vehicles aren't nearly as good at that as some might claim. But they're absolutely wonderful for doing 200 kilometers a day, day in, day out. Um, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how this affects cost, too, when it comes to fuel. Well, Electricity I mean, versus... Yeah, well, the thing is, is what's interesting is that, I mean, the vans are going to be more expensive. I can't even begin to tell you how much, but, I mean, a a typical electric car is probably $20,000 more than its gas-powered equivalent. That said, and this will only be more, that said, um, they're saying that it saves $12,000 a year on diesel costs. Mm-hmm. I think that might be something of an exaggeration, but there's some significant monies on a, on a, on a yearly basis. So, you know, with EVs, they keep talking, oh, in five years for the consumers, they pay themselves back. Consumers don't care about that. Business comp- companies and, and deliverers, yeah. hmm. they got to keep their vans 10, 12, 15 years, and, they'll, you know, they'll be paid back after eight. That's a great equation for them. So the, 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 uh, it, um, electrifying, making them battery powered, these last uh, mile delivery vans, as it were, is an absolute no brainer. They should all be electric. There shouldn't be a gas powered one on the road. Uh, many are asking if there should be incentives to purchase these. Obviously, uh, sales are picking up, supply is down, demand is growing. Do we need to have incentives for people to buy these? I don't think so. I don't think so. The, the value equation, to my mind, what I just said, um, makes a lot more sense uh, for these things than, than for EV cars. Again, as I said, you tell a, uh, the average consumer that, well, after seven years, you're going to have saved uh, uh, the money equivalent to, you know, the extra price of the EV. They, people don't care about that. They take eight-year loans out. They don't think rationally about the money. But corporations are a completely different affair because, you know, say you have 10,000 of these vans. And, 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 and you pay them all off after eight years, but you keep them seven years, that, that's millions and millions of dollars. And that's right in, the, you know, right in their corporate coffers. Um, so I don't think they need um, incentives on this at all. Uh, the Prime Minister talking about how uh, we're more than just assembly here, whether it's batteries or the supplies for the batteries. Are you confident Canada can become a juggernaut in all facets of EV production? How much time do you have on this one? I've been studying this for the last six weeks, especially, and it's a really complicated subject. I'll try to make it quick. Um, We have the minerals. We don't have the processing of the minerals right now, but we could get that. The problem going forward is that 
we have assembly plants for cars, but I'm not sure how many battery plants we're going to get because um, one of the little-known parts of the uh, President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act is that there's this little-known clause that's called 45X, and the numbers that they're incentivizing uh, automakers to move their battery plants to America only. But they can get up to $2 billion a year subsidy for 10 years. I know that number sounds ridiculous, but I've had it confirmed from ministers of both provincial and um, um, uh, federal um, uh, governments, uh, auto companies. It's just ridiculous. And the Americans are, you know, to counter the Chinese influx of uh, battery materials, uh, uh, China owns about 80% of that business right now. They're willing to give away, it seems, it seems, about $150 billion over the next 10 years. Do you think that um, will include Canada, though, David? Too? No, it doesn't. It, I know yeah. it doesn't. Mm. Now, I, I, where, where people get confused is there's also a consumer credit of $7,500 right. that does include Canada. This is, right. That's 30D on IRA. This is 45X, and it's the most lopsided market distortion I've ever seen in 39 years in this business. It's huge money. And it, it, you got to question anybody who builds a battery plant here. That said, um, General Motors already started a cathode active material plant in Bay-Concourt. And, you know, that doesn't sound as sexy as a battery plant. But the cathode is 50% of the material in hmm. a battery. So it's, it actually is a big deal. And that we can get. That's not ex- exclusive to the state's for that um, mm. inflation reduction. So from that point of view, we look good. David Booth, senior writer, Post Media Driving, driving.ca, talking about uh, Ingersoll today, Justin Trudeau and Doug Ford making the announcement as uh, vehicles start to roll off the plant in Ingersoll. David, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We don't need to tell you how expensive food prices have uh, got. Even my daughter in university who uh, went out to do some grocery shopping is noticing, and this isn't a bad thing, how expensive it comes to buy food. Uh, in this new uh, Canada's food price report, which was just released this week, family of four total annual grocery bill expected to be sixteen grand, sixteen two eight eight, a thousand dollars more, a thousand sixty five dollars more than it was this year. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Andrea Rankin is with us, Master of Public Administration candidate at Dalhousie University, author of the 2023 report and with us now. Andrea, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, thank you for having me. So how do you compare this report to those of past years, last year, the year before during COVID? Is there any comparison? Right. So the the numbers that we forecasted for last year in 2022, we were looking at a five to seven percent increase, um, which is what we're pre- predicting again for this year. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, the number um, of the increase did look a little bit different when we got the numbers in September. Um, so, you know, we're, we're still going to be seeing those those higher food prices for this next year. How do you predict what is and, and foresee that this is going to be the same next year? We hear, obviously, supply chain issues, uh, uh, whatever the issue is of the day, and you can expand on those if you'd like. Um, how do you predict it that far out that, wow, even next year we're going to have some difficulty here? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we take into consideration, you know, those factors that you mentioned. Um, so we look at, you know, the driving factors of climate change. Those events are becoming more severe and and more more regular as the years go by. Um, we're looking at transportation. So as far as, you know, as you said, the supply chain interruptions that we've been experiencing, uh, prices of gas for actually transporting the groceries, um, you know, we look at, you know, inflation, Bank of Canada numbers and kind of put all of these things together to be able to make these forecasts. Um, so it's, you know, all of these factors come together to really push prices uh, in the way that we've seen. So no real relief on the horizon. So in the first part of 2023, we are going to be looking at seeing, you know, those higher um, costs being maintained. But in the latter half of 2023, um, we're hoping for, you know, and expecting that stabilization. So the prices won't drop. Um, but there will be that that stabilization of of the food prices. We hear so much, uh, Andrea, about uh, food companies, grocers, whatever, record profits, all of that. Is is that accurate? Is it justified? Are, are grocers, I don't want to say gouging, but are, are they making too much profit here? Because that's where everybody seems to point the finger. So, you know, one of the silver linings of how this year has gone as far as the food prices we've seen are, the, you know, the the study from the Competition Bureau um, and the investigation from Ottawa. So those are the what I see as, you know, a bit of a silver lining in all of this is that there there's likely going to be a little bit more transparency um, in that area of, of competition and of prices for consumers to be able to understand really what's going on. Uh, and how do we explain profits? Just that people are staying. I remember the early part of the pandemic, obviously nobody was going out. Everybody was staying home and making more food. We were, people were buying things and making homemade recipes and such. Is that one of the reasons for the profits that we are seeing? It, it definitely could contribute to it. You know, people are getting reacquainted with their kitchens and their homes as a cost saving measure because, you know, you are able to save a little bit more money by doing, you know, bulk meals and using your leftovers and that kind of thing. So you may be me seeing, you know, personally for myself, I, I've spent more time in my kitchen um, in, in the last little while. So, you know, that that may be a, a driving force. Uh, do you think we'll see any sort of um, any, anything new coming out of these reports? Anything new that or, or anything that may change uh, uh, what grocers are doing? Or again, is that a red herring? So, I mean, you know, we did see that this year that there was a price freeze um, and, and that came as a result of the, the high prices. Um, so it was, you know, Canadians were hoping maybe for a little bit of empathy sooner than than it was given. Um, but. But, you know, these are these are things that are continuing to, to develop as as the situation unfolds. And, you know, 2023 could could be a very different year. How does this change the way we shop or even the retail experience itself? I mean, we've seen over time grocery stores are, are pretty elaborate facilities. I mean, you can get something to a basic uh, box store right to something that, you know, creates the food right in front of you. and has all sorts of offerings. How is this going to change all this, do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, as far as the choices that consumers are making when they actually do enter the store, um, a lot of them are looking to take advantage of, you know, volume discounting um, and things like that. So, you know, people moving more towards the, the grocery store, it may offer them a chance to kind of expand, like you said, on the, on the you know, ready-made meals and things like that. Um, but, you know, consumers are making different choices when they when they walk in the store than they did, you know, a few years ago. Certain products uh, up more than others by a substantial amount, or is this pretty much right across the board? So there are some categories that have some differentiation. Um, the, the vegetable category is predicted at three to eight, or sorry, pardon me, six to eight percent, um, whereas fruits are between uh, the the three to five percent. So there's a little bit of variability. Uh, bakery, uh, dairy, 
meets they're all the the five to seven percent um so overall it's looking at the the change of five to seven percent five bucks for a head of lettuce what's that all about andrea I mean, so I, there there was um, a virus that did take um, some some crops, um, so that was one contributing factor to to the prices. There was less to to be found. So, but again, it's all of those those factors coming together. You know, um, viruses that may take over certain crop fields, um, the transportation costs, you know, the climate events. If there's not a good growing season, so you know, there's there's a lot that that could uh, could affect a, a five dollar head of lettuce. Does this affect the salad industry and people that are buying uh, salads at restaurants? I mean, hearing that they're in some situations, they've taken it off menus. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean it, it could be, um, a, you know, a cost saving measure for for the restaurants. But I think, you know, as the seasonality continues, um, you know, there there's a chance that, you know, this may just be, you know, one of those flowing uh, issues that, that comes up. Um, and then because of the seasonality and the growing seasons that that it'll it'll fade off again. All right, Andrea, tips for shoppers. What can we do to help ease the pain? Any ideas off the top of your head? Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, value discounting, you know, looking for those three, four, two, four offers that are out there. Um, there's food saving apps. And then, you know, for, for myself, um, I live with a roommate. So sharing on some of those basics, um, that are out there as far as, you know, butters or condiments. So you're not double buying things for your household and have maybe having them go bad before you're able to use them. Planning what you're going to eat and then eating what you buy is going to be really crucial. If you cut down on your food waste, you're not going to be double buying, like I said. So, you know, again, it, getting reacquainted with our kitchens is, is going to be a, be a help for us all. All right. The Canada food price report out for next year and another increase, about a thousand bucks for the average family. Andrea Rankin with this Master of Public Administration candidate at Dalhousie University, author, uh, one of the authors of the 2023 uh, report. Andrea, thanks so much. Be well. Thank you so much. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. This is the headline in the CBC, how Bill C-21 turned from banning handguns to hunting guns. Uh, the government's latest amendment would ban many hunting, many hunting rifles, shotguns, even antique cannons. Confusion was on the agenda at the Parliamentary Committee last week after the Liberal government brought in last-minute amendments to its contentious gun control legislation. The proposed changes to Bill 21 uh, were tacked on by a Liberal MP after it had passed a second reading, drawing complaints from opposition MPs who accused the government of sneaking in changes that would expand the scope of prohibited weapon uh, weapons to include hunting rifles. Uh, to talk more about all of this, and uh, oddly enough, news today, Toronto police talking about a massive uh, gun seizure in which there was, what, 260 charges laid, 62 guns were seized, all of them except one were guns from the United States. They were American guns. One was stolen here in uh, Canada. We are barking up the wrong tree, and you don't have to be a gun owner to figure that one out. Let's bring in Tony Bernardo, Executive Director of the Canadian Sports Shooting Association, and is with us now. Tony, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Well, I am well, Scott, and I hope you are too. So far, so good. So, Tony, um, why do you think the Prime Minister, he seems to be backtracking on some of this? Uh, and oddly enough, uh, Montreal goaltender uh, Carey Price, uh, you see him in his camouflage and his hunting gear, uh, and him, who normally doesn't say too much about political things, saying, hey, what are you doing here? Uh, is this starting to resonate with the government, do you think? 
Uh, it, it's hard to say. I, I think the liberals will do whatever it takes to make the storm settle down, but they won't do any more than that. The original incarnation of this particular legislation included many thousands of hunting firearms already. Um, it's now just the, the second incarnation of it that seems to have riled uh, the hunters up. Uh, and it, it seems odd that uh, this on as a investigation uncovers, and, and here we go, 62 guns seized, only one of them is from Canada. I mean, if, if this doesn't prove we're barking up the wrong tree, what does? Well, I, I don't know because, I mean, the police agencies across Canada have been saying for years and years that the guns are not originating with Canadian firearms owners. And, and I mean, just a couple of weeks ago in Vaughan, they, they did the same thing. And they said that 100% of the guns they traced in crimes were uh, smuggled in from the U.S., 100%. And yours is, you know, they got one gun that originated in Canada from a robbery where, of course, the owner was victimized too, right? So, you know, I mean, when you look at all this, you're going, what is the government thinking of? And the only thing I can say is probably really, really crass politics. Uh, So this clearly does even shine focus on or focuses us on the border. I mean, we all want, you know, gun crime to end or at least get a handle on it in some way. But again, it clear it, it appears that we're focusing on the wrong thing. Are we doing enough? Is there more we can be doing at the border to stop the 61 guns that came in rather than the one Canadian? Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure there must be, and it just requires money. I, I know that back in, in the spring, they had some CBSA folks on, and they were testifying to the House of Commons that, are you ready for this? One millionth of one percent of the cargo that comes across on trains is actually checked. Hmm. I mean, it's, it simply is not the manpower and the money to do these kind of checks. And there's new scanning systems that can be used for cars that could detect the, the firearms that, that are inside the car illegally. And yet there's no money to, to get this stuff for them. But the gun ban that they're doing right now literally literally represents billions and billions of dollars it's about a third of all the guns in canada uh is the u.s border interested in this discussion or is this strictly canada's problem because they're coming in from there well it's not like they're going it's not like they're going from canada's problem because the money they make selling uh guns to the canadian bad guys fuels the american gangs right Hmm, hmm. So I think that it, there's probably a lot of joint interest. And from uh, anecdotally talking to police officers that are involved in the investigation of this stuff, they, they say there's tremendous cooperation out of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms in the United States. So I think they've got a willing partner here to go ahead and do this. There simply isn't money, but the government sees fit. To actually take away, by our best estimate, somewhere between six and eight billion dollars in generational wealth that has been spent on firearms over the years. And quite frankly, I mean, the firearms owners, I think, are 100 percent right in expecting to be compensated for it. Remember, they've done nothing wrong, committed no crimes, jumped through every hoop that the government put up. 
and now the government is going to take the stuff anyway. I, and uh, I mean, certainly within a common law democracy, compensation would be would be being discussed, but it's not even in this bill, not even in it. So you're not convinced that uh, whether it's blowback from the community is like we're seeing from Carey Price or whether we're hearing reports from the Toronto police that 62 guns have been seized and 61 of them are from the United States. Is this is this going to generate a conversation or again, is it just guns bad? Get rid of them. Well, it's been guns bad. Get rid of them for 25 years. But, you know, I think this particular time. There may be that blowback. I mean, I, I can't remember the last time I saw the media uh, in Canada this interested in digging into the, the truth behind this issue. And that's wonderful to see. Tony Bernardo with us, executive director of the Canadian Sports Shooting Association, Bill C-21 and gun control in Canada getting blowback as it's uh, it's hitting farmers and sports shooters. And then reports from the Toronto police, uh, massive seizure, 260 charges laid, 62 guns, one was from Canada. The rest came across the border. Uh, Tony, here's hoping this focuses some light on where the real issue is. Thanks for your time. Be well. And thank for yours, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. As you know, Friday, we're broadcasting live from Gore Park. As uh, my goodness, uh, I think I've done it. I think it's like this is my 20th year of uh, doing this, lighting the CHML Christmas tree of hope and the festivities and so on and so forth. And over those 20 years, my goodness, there's been a tremendous change uh, in downtown Hamilton. And it's fascinating for four hours just sitting in Gore Park, uh, trying to get to as many establishments as I can within the block looking at things and just observing what's going on there uh boy you could tell this this city is booming and um i remember when i lived in calgary during the 80s ralph klein the mayor there used to say the official bird was the crane i think that is the situation with hamilton now let's bring in michael marini coordinator marketing invest in hamilton and is with us now michael thank you for the time i hope you're well I'm very well. Thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, great to have you here. And, you know, I, I say this all the time, but, man, it's amazing to see how this city has transformed. And, and you know, I, I tell everybody, at least get downtown once a month or every couple of weeks and just see what's going on. Because you'll sit at an intersection and say to yourself, something's different here. What's what's missing? What's here that wasn't here before? Is it as difficult for you to sell this city as it once was when we've talked in the past? Well, we never take our investment community for granted, that's for sure. But I think when we started this segment, uh, how many years ago, Scott? Was it 10 years ago? Yeah, I don't know. We started yeah. meeting up. Uh, it was a different city. Uh, I think it was a city in transition and, and uh, on the cusp of something great. And I think now as we uh, talk in December of 2022, we are achieving great things in the city. And there is hope for the city. And, and uh, there's a sense of pride uh, of the successes we've had to date and, and a lot of anticipation for the su- successes to come. Um, you know, I'm just looking around uh, the downtown when I'm walking around and, and, you know, there's a handful of projects you can see visibly, the cranes all over, as yeah. you uh, mentioned before. And those handful of projects are, you know, equating to over 100 stories total. And uh, since uh, 2017, we've had to nearly 3,600 new dwelling units being built in the downtown or, or currently under construction. So when you look at the changes, um, certainly we want to thank our uh, our large-scale developers who are building those multi-residential units. 
But at the same time, I really wanted to put a, a big thanks out to the small business community in our downtown uh, that weathered a very tremendous storm over these past two and a half years with the pandemic. And um, a lot of them uh, made it through. And um, so that we, we owe them a debt of gratitude uh, to these small business owners for what they went through, uh, the hardships they endured. And, and I think it's in, uh, imperative for all of us as Hamiltonians uh, to maintain that pride in our city and go out and, and support those uh, those small businesses uh, through the holiday season and, and uh, all year round. And whether and obviously you're more the business side with economic development, but whether we've talked to uh, people from your neck of the woods or even in the residential area, I mean everybody has has saw the need for residential downtown, and we've seen that grow over the years. But post pandemic, what I'm really noticing are people. Like even after six, seven o'clock, there, there's people down there, and you can just, you know, you can tell. You can attribute it. You can attribute that to the fact that more people are just simply living down there. It's they don't roll up the sidewalks at five o'clock anymore. No, they don't. Uh, our largest cohorts of those living downtown are millennials and empty nesters. Uh, so two groups with uh, disposable income. Uh, two groups that don't necessarily need uh, like a, a two-car family. Uh, they want accessible transit solutions. Uh, they want a little more density and a, and a lot more uh, choice in terms of shopping and experiences within uh, you know a two, three-block radius of where they're living. So have the, the downtown core in particular, the lower city, is quite attracted to a lot of uh, those who are looking uh, to purchase homes or condos or, or even rental units because you have those amenities within a walking distance. And I can tell you, you know, I was down uh, in the downtown on Saturday night for dinner, and uh, it was very difficult to find a parking spot. And I'm not <laughs> complaining. You know, I'm yeah. not complaining at all. I love that because that means the, uh, the restaurants, like you said, after five, there's a life down there. Yeah. And and that is what we want to see. We want uh, ultimately this city to be a twenty four seven city. We want we want activity uh, all the time, a commercial activity and, and uh, entertainment options uh, well into the night. All right, I burned up a bit of your time here. Well, m- pretty much most of it. So, what do you want to talk about uh, specifically? What's caught my interest here is the spend it here campaign, where you were talking about spending local. We've seen that during the pandemic. Are, are we still as committed to that as we were when we were locked up? No, absolutely. And I think when we were uh, in lockdown in terms of pandemic, uh, you know, I give credit to uh, to council, the last term of council and, and Mayor Eisenberger, along with our senior staff of the city of Hamilton and our community partners. We came together and we formed the mayor's task force on economic recovery. And uh, and basically one of the tenets of that plan was to have more marketing opportunities or promotional opportunities for our small businesses to make it through the pandemic. And now that uh, hopefully we're, we're going to see brighter days and no more lockdowns, uh, that we need to uh, encourage people to shop local as much as possible to help these small businesses who weathered that storm. So the Spend It Here campaign is basically, if you go to investinhamilton.ca slash spendithere, for the next 35 days, you're going to see Scout, who is the mascot of uh, the Hamilton Public Library, and he's all about discovery and learning new things. He's going to go visit our BIAs, our 11 BIAs, business improvement areas across the city, and showing you the great places to to eat, um, the great places to shop, and the great places to uh, explore and get those experiential, uh, you know, moments. So 
follow along on uh, on Instagram at Hamilton Ecdev, Hamilton E C D E V, and uh, just follow Scott uh, Scout. <laughs> Maybe Scott will make an appearance too. Sure, um, I'll wear the costume. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so you can follow along, and then you'll you'll get to see what what uh, the great offerings our business improvement areas uh, offer up to the uh, residents. So I'm standing at Gore Park on Friday, and I'm doing the 360, and everything looks great except that one damn facade. When is something going to be finally done about that? Because it's the last piece of the puzzle. It appears. I know it's not your department, but it's uh, it, in part it is, uh, and, and uh, I wish I had the the in depth uh, answer for you. Uh, I think you threw me a curveball there, but I can Sorry. get the answer for you. No, I can get the answer for you about timelines and and what the uh, the plans are and where it, where it is in the planning stages. If I don't have that information, but maybe that's uh, some information I could follow up with you, and you can let the listeners know once we have the information. That'd be great because again, it just seems like it's the last piece of the puzzle. Michael, uh, come on anytime you want and boast about Hamilton anytime you want. There'll always be a place for you. Michael Marini here, a coordinator, marketing, invest in Hamilton. Get downtown and check it out. My goodness, it's amazing. You might want to take some cash with you and put a down payment on a condo because they're everywhere. Uh, Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. I've never seen this before in my life where, uh, as I said during the last provincial election campaign, all four of the major political parties, whether it's conservative, liberals, uh, Greens or the NDP, are all saying we need to build uh, one to one and a half uh, million new homes, which I don't think I've ever seen all four different political parties from each side of the political spectrum and and from one end to the other agree with some something like this. However, uh, now the fight is on because it seems that we can't come to any sort of solution as to how to get this done. It's either, um, on, on one hand, a uh, big, bad urban sprawl. On the other hand, uh, a shortage of homes people can't buy now, and we've got increased immigration due to labor shortages. Where is everybody going to live? Why can't we get houses built? Uh, why is there not a, I don't know, happy medium in here? Uh, let's bring in Peter Grant, professor of political science at McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter. Peter, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, thanks. So, Peter, what are your thoughts here? We all know we need housing. All four major uh, political parties have said they were going to do that. Um, but still, we get caught in urban boundaries versus infill uh, sites and such, or Greenbelt, or what have you. Uh, where is the solution here? Because it seems, again, although all political parties seem to be on the same page, we seem to be arguing about this again. Where Where's the solution? Well, I mean, I guess part of the solution would be for Ford, to, Premier Ford, to follow the the advice of his own uh, committee about building more homes, which you know said ultimately the the constraint wasn't uh, land. You know that there was enough land already, uh, you know, zoned and, and ready uh, for development that you know you could be building out for many years, and you know maybe start there and think about how we could grow uh, in a kind of a more dense fashion on that. Uh, you know, I think in some ways, uh, you know, what Ford has done, uh, you know, with its recent decisions, whether it's around the green belt, uh, around uh, development charges, uh, on a number of these questions, or, you know, potentially around the urban boundary here in, in Hamilton, is, uh, you know, create a lot of conflict, you know, without necessarily moving forward about how, A, we could uh, do more density uh, within existing urban perimeters, but also, how we could get the most housing out of uh, the land that's already been earmarked for housing. 
as opposed to you know creating conflicts uh, you know around the green belt uh, on the one hand but also with city councils uh, you know who want development in many cases um, but are now a bit wary of, of that development because they fear the uh, development charges that they're going to forego with this most recent uh, legislation will force them to hike uh, municipal taxes greatly. So there's a way in which Ford, as you know, you, as, a, as a politician, you probably want to unite your friends and divide your enemies. But in this instance, I think he's done a lot to unite his enemies, uh, but also to divide his friends, people who would probably uh, support parts of his project, but... Uh, are now finding that they they don't really have the ability to support it because it will mean too great tax increases or too much loss uh, of green spaces. A couple of things on that. Um, uh, uh, Isn't the city sort of guilty of the same thing? I mean, they've been told by their experts what they need to do as well, and yet we're not really looking at expansion in any sort. And I've also talked to planners and say, well, it's great to fill in what we have now, but we still need to plan this. You just can't do it year after year. You've got to have, you know, five-year, 10-year, 15, 20, 30-year plans that have to be laid out uh, ahead of time. And and again, um, if there was all of that infield and and all of that opportunity available, and from what I'm told, there isn't enough infield to still meet the demand. We have to go out as well as up and inside. um, That that seems to be as well, so it seems we're at the same place we were before the pandemic, and that being, you know, we need new housing, but nobody seems to be in agreement on what to do or how to do it. Yeah, I mean, I would suspect that a lot of the people who are opposed to what you know Ford is proposing at the moment are going to face their own sort of put up or shut up moment when you know we see uh, much more intense development within the existing urban boundary. Uh, and, you know, we know that when people do that, that there's uh, a lot of opposition to that, you know, in, you know, including when it's, you know, developing things that are already kind of, you know, low rise uh, retail along Upper James, for instance, the idea of, you know, going up at all produces all sorts of unhappiness in those neighborhoods. So, yeah, I think we will reach that moment pretty soon where, you know, again, uh, people either are willing to accept a much greater degree of, of infill density or, uh, you know, they're they're back faced with the fact that there there will be a need to expand the urban boundary. So I think you know we're at that we're at that moment in the city uh, where we'll be facing that, and you know across the GTA as a whole. I mean, we have seen I think in recent changes uh, to you know different uh, provincial planning acts, uh, making it a lot easier to overcome the opposition of people in you know existing neighborhoods to to intensification. So as we'll see to what extent that leads to to decisions to pursue. A uh, much denser uh, development in those areas. It seems that we're having that conversation, but not the one about the boundary. Is it? This not a combination of both. I mean, yes, we have to take care of of infield and 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 development where it is needed there. But on the other hand, there's also the need to build more houses out. Um, and and again, if you look at guidelines through Ontario, it's usually for every single block, it's a mixed bag. If you're building something new, of higher and medium and and low density housing. Uh, is this not a combination? We just don't seem to be having that conversation. It's either build everything in the city or, or nothing at all. I don't know. When I drive around the sort of suburbs of the GTA, I see plenty of, you know, new suburban developments kind of pushing out. To There's out plenty of suburban now. developments, Peter. We're, we're not seeing, you know, the development. I mean, we are seeing continued development of, of new housing communities. But clearly it's not enough, Peter. But clearly it's not enough. devoted to this and are going to continue to be developed, uh, you know, right up until I die, I think, before we really are necessarily coming into, you know, new lands that have to be added to that. 
But again, that's clearly not enough because we're seeing what we're seeing. We're having a hard time getting Canadians here into homes, let alone increase in immigration that is coming to support uh, a labor industry. So, um, again, we, we can all see building. We can see Hamilton growing. We can see it everywhere. But that's progress. Is Obviously, that's still not enough. Yeah, I mean, if, you, if we sort of follow this idea that Canada somehow is going to grow to 100 million people, uh, yeah, presumably uh, there will be a need to, uh, you know, find lands on which to house uh, those people. You know, at the same time, I think of, you know, a place like uh, uh, Mirabelle Airport on the outskirts of Montreal, which was developed in part on the expectation that Montreal by this point would have, you know, expanded well out past uh, that area, uh, you know, but it hasn't. So, uh, again, you know, there's a necessity when thinking about uh, these projections of growth to, to plan around that. But, you know, the decision, you know, to make decisions too soon, I mean, has the risk of things like Mirabelle, where you end up with, you know, developments that are not appropriate uh, in places that, you know, ultimately could have been preserved uh, for agricultural development. Um, I don't want to get you uh, in a debate about Quebec because there's a lot of different factors uh, coming in on that one. So where do you see this? How do you see this moving forward? Because, again, it seems much like healthcare. We seem to be, seem to be in the same situation that we were prior to the pandemic. Uh, people wanting this or that in opposite extremes. Where do we meet in the middle? How do we meet in the middle? Yeah, I mean, I think this is going to be a, a difficult one because on the one hand, uh, you know, I think on the part of the provincial government, this is an issue where an important part of the, the conservative base is not really behind uh, the premier. Uh, you know, both uh, people living in suburbs, not wanting a next suburb beyond them because of the traffic and, and the loss of space. Uh, uh, you know, issues around potential rises in property tax to deal with the development charge uh, issue. And people worried about the loss of uh, food land and the ability to grow one's own food, which has a certain you know appeal in parts of the conservative base. So, I think Ford's in a, in a tough situation and probably hasn't made it easier with these stories about a small number of developers buying up, you know, chunks of land just before they, they come into the green belt. I mean, it makes it harder, I think, for his supporters to, to make the case that this is about building homes. But on the other hand, for, you know, a city council like uh, Hamilton, uh, and particularly for a new mayor who wants to have a positive relationship, relationship with Doug Ford and they said kind things about each other soon after the election this is clearly a flashpoint where uh, you know the ability to build a positive relationship could sour very quickly if, if the city you know pushes too strongly on this so you know one could see things like the strong mayor power really being used in a situation like this for the provincial government to tell the mayor to go forward on this you know at the expense you know if not acting of you know losing uh, the ability to to attract money from queen's park for other uh, city priorities so uh, I think for, for uh, you know, both the city and the province, this is a difficult political issue. Peter Grape with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. And you too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can hear him after the 6 o'clock news. Read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, and listen, when you hear that song played that way, you can't not be well. Yeah, you know why? We were playing uh, Springsteen's latest, uh, it's from Only the Strong Survive, and the song we played was Soul Days, uh, Sam Moore of Sam and Dave singing on that song. This is a uh, old R&B covers. 
that he's doing. So pretty cool. cool. Well, the one that, so was, that inspired the one that, that inspired just, yeah, the, uh, Ben. The one that just played was from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame 25th anniversary. Sam Moore playing with Springsteen and the E Street Band doing his stuff. It was awesome. That that if you want to look at you go. If you want to have an evening's entertainment, go on your computer, type in 25th anniversary Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and they got Simon and Garfunkel playing. They got the Kinks playing with Metallica. They got oh, it's they got uh, wow. John Fogarty with Springsteen. It's it's a great show. All right, I'll have to look for that. You will. Um, we're talking about uh, housing mm. uh, just recently, and uh, obviously the mega rally that was in uh, that was in Hamilton. Uh, were you at the mega rally this uh, this weekend? Regard to housing? Uh, no, I was not. I was working. There you go. Uh, so uh, people upset that uh, Doug Ford is e- eating into the green belt. And, you know, I don't know what the politics of that are, because apparently he's adding what he's taking and then adding more. Uh, and, and apparently past governments have been guilty of nibbling into the green belt when it suits their purposes. Um, you know, here we are yelling about housing again, yet still having the same discussions that we had uh, before the pandemic and, and that being not in my backyard. So how do we move forward from this? You know, I think about the green belt and nobody, everybody wants land there and, and so on and so forth. But I can't help thinking, you know, after being on a plane a couple of weeks ago, how green and how giant Canada is. You get in your car and you drive 20 minutes outside of town. You're in green. You're, there's green everywhere. There's 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 more there, there's more green than there are people here. So why do we get caught up in? And again, I'm not asking to pay paradise here again. I, you know, I think the solution is in the middle, but it seems that whenever anybody wants to build, again, we're piling on just like healthcare and doing the same crap that we did before. Where are we going to put the four to 500,000 immigrants that are supposed to come every year because we have a labor shortage? That's a town the size of Hamilton. But, it, no, it, look, it, it is a really difficult question that comes with a, a series of answers that are unsatisfactory, and uh, some would say even more than that. I mean, for example, I heard someone the other day say, could we put something in that says if you want to immigrate to this country, you must settle X hours, X kilometers outside of southern Ontario so that we're not just putting everybody into the same place? Well, uh, you know, no. if we're going to have a free country, I don't know how you can tell people you have people to go live. where the people go where the jobs are, Scott. Right, and, and people go where the jobs are, and and again, this is a country that we do like the ability to move freely. That, but I'm saying, so there was an idea that was thrown out, and immediately go, no, we can't do that. There's lots of ideas that are thrown out. They all seem to come with giant caveats that make them not work very well. Um, you can talk about expanding into the green belt. I understand why people may be upset about this, but I think your previous guest, I think uh, Peter Grafe was on, and he was saying, you know, there's going to be a put up or shut up moment for those who are opposed. Uh, so if the green belt is not to be touched, okay, come up with something quickly that we can dig our teeth into for what is. And here, and you and I talked about this last week. If the answer is much greater density, Okay, stop talking about it then and pass a law and see how people respond to this. That if they are, if you now can build 25-story condo towers in all different neighborhoods, rather than simply saying, no, you can't do this, what are you going to do? And I bet you, Scott, that if you were to suddenly start putting in some of these other ideas, they would be just as disliked as the advancing into the green belt one. 
the environmental extremist is a great reason we have this problem that we do. This buck has been passed for the last 20 years as governments have successfully branded developers as bad people. Yet no one knows who's going to build the houses for the four to 500,000 we're, we're expecting every right, year moving forward. but it's forward. not just the environment. Like, I, I, okay, so the environmental extremists, as you want to call them, that's fine. They don't want any green land touched. I get that. But you have other people who may be extremists. But as I say, if you were to start to say all the homes in your neighborhood can now be Making made into yeah. fourplexes. There's going to be four times as many people in the neighborhood in the house that you bought, Scott, thinking you were buying yeah. on a quiet street. You know, the whole I assure field, you, people will not be happy know, with that I either. I know, but again, to think that is a solution is really is really overextending. Yes, there's some vacant parcels of land that need to be developed. No, you can't start tearing people's homes down and building apartment buildings in them because that's not what the neighborhood was designed for. Exactly. So moving forward, design these neighborhoods the way they need to be designed and such. But there's this sort of myth that we can solve all this problem just by building on what we have. And that's just simply not accurate. But that's my point. If you are going to be saying no more expansion, I think you also need to bring yeah. with you what are you going to do to solve the problem rather than yeah. simply just saying, no, we can't do this? What are you going to do? Well, we haven't figured that out yet, but we're not doing this. That's not good enough. We're exactly where we were 20 years ago. Nothing has changed. All right, Scott Radley Show coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Thank you, Scott, as always. Have a great show. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. 5.58 news is coming up. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one from Carl. Canada's now got its first full-scale EV facility. Does that mean the future's electric? Maybe it's hydrogen, something that we haven't always looked into fully. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.